I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Kings and chapter 21. We're going to be reading together verses 17 through 29 as we finish out chapter 21. We're going to see Nahab, uh, sorry, Ahab, who is very, very pleased now that he has been given the garden, the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, uh, to be his own. He was not given it fairly or rightly. Um, he was given it uh, after his wife connived with the elders of Naboth's town to have him murdered. It was all done under the king's seal and by his authority, and yet it was a desperately wicked act. But it brought Ahab great joy as soon as he heard that Naboth was dead, and he immediately went to that garden to possess it. And instead of simply finding the vineyard uh, that he had longed for next to his palace, he also found Elijah the Tishbite, the prophet, who was going to rebuke him and remind him that there is one who always sees whatever we do. There is no place that we can go where God is not present. And therefore, when we sin, we sin, as R.C. Sproul put it, quorum Deo, before the face of God. That is how we live. And so he found out the, the hard way, once again, that the Lord had seen what he had been up to. But before we turn to the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of the word and let's hear and ask for his, his help. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word. And as we read it, we pray we would hear it as though it was delivered by your voice this very day. For we know that these words are living and powerful, just as true today as they were when you gave them through uh, Elijah so long ago, this faithful prophet who did your will, no matter how dangerous it was. Lord, we pray that you would give us his spirit and that you would help us to remember that we too need forgiveness. We may not have slain Naboth the Jezreelite, uh, Jezreelite, rather, we nonetheless have done many sins ourselves and are greatly in need of your, your grace and your forgiveness. Help us, O oh Lord, therefore, not to be stiff-necked, not to be hard-hearted when your word is coming forth, but rather to receive it with joy and gladness. Help me to preach it, to divide it aright. Let me say nothing that goes against your word or muddles the gospel or confuses your people. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 21, and I'll be reading verses 17 through 29. This is the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. 
But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up and he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So it was when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let me ask, I know many of the questions that I ask you are not rhetorical. I'm looking for an answer. This is a rhetorical question, but one hopefully that you will think on as we go through this particular uh, meditation on the word of the Lord. Uh, And the question is simple. It's, who is your enemy and who is your friend? And how do you go about judging that? In this particular section of scripture, we see how Ahab was certain he knew who his enemy and who his friends were. He was certain, for instance, Elijah was his enemy. Why was Elijah his enemy? Well, Elijah was his enemy, according to Ahab, because he did not flatter him. He did not tell him comforting and encouraging lies like the false prophets who thronged Samaria, the capital, whom uh, we will meet in the next chapter. Elijah also kept delivering what to his eyes was, was bad news. It always turned out to be true, but Ahab still didn't want to hear it. He did not want to hear the truth. He could not, quote, handle the truth. It was something that made him very, very sad. Naboth had been his enemy as well, according to Ahab. He, he wanted Naboth's vineyard. He had offered him uh, other vineyards. He had offered him large sums of money. But Naboth had refused to give it to him, pointing out that the law of God forbade him to sell or to give away the land that God had given to his fathers. Naboth, you see, had loved God more than the king. And I'm sure Ahab thought that a a little religion wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't necessarily bad. But when it got in the way of what he wanted, well, then religion was a terrible thing. So even the law of God could be his, quote, enemy. Uh, This was a terrible thing, a terrible way of, of estimating who your enemies were. Who were his friends? Ahab thought he knew definitely who his friends were. The false prophets, for instance, who, who thronged uh, about him, uh, he preferred their comforting lies. They were his friends, he thought. They make me happy. They, they tell me pleasant things. They, they tickle my itching ears. Oh, and his wife, of course, Jezebel. Why, she had gotten him the vineyard that he coveted. Of course, she had misused his authority. She had suborned perjury. She had commanded a judicial murder. But what did that matter? She had gotten him his present, his precious. She had gotten him the vineyard, and that was all that mattered. She cared about him and his feelings and wanted him to feel good no matter what the cost was. But in fact, Ahab, as we shall see, had it exactly reversed. Uh, The the false prophets and his wife, what were they doing for him? They They were speeding him on his way to hell. 
They were sending him to eternal damnation by their actions and their words. They were friends in the way that a fentanyl dealer is the friend of the person who is buying from him. He does him no good, even though the man may eagerly await his coming and receive his, quote, gifts at his hand as though they were good for him. They were not. Elijah, on the other hand, was a truth teller. He delivered the word of God regardless of the cost of doing so. And how much good could he have done for Ahab had Ahab only been willing to listen to him? He could have shown Elijah how to be a king like David, a a king who had a heart after the Lord, who obeyed the law of the Lord, who enriched his people, who gave them true teaching, who gave them true leadership the kind of leadership that God had wanted kings to give to his people. He could have shown Ahab how to be saved. Elijah could have done that. But Ahab did not want that. He chose instead to listen to the mortal enemies of his eternal soul. Now, I wish I could say that Ahab is the only person in history who has ever done that. But I dare say there are millions and billions of people who listen to those who do not mean them any eternal good, who will only deliver them into the hands of their mortal enemies and who will send them to hell forever. Now Jezebel thought she had gotten her husband uh, Naboth, uh, her husband Ahab rather, Naboth's vineyard for nothing, but in fact the price, as Elijah would make very clear, was, was incredibly high. Uh, Because you see, God saw just as he sees every sin. And we remember, as the Lord tells us again and again in his word, that he is the avenger of his people's blood as far back as Abel. You remember what God said to Cain after he had killed his brother Abel. If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, and we will see, not John, I'm so sorry, Genesis chapter 4, and we'll see there an example of how God sees and how God hears and how God reacts. Starting with verse 9 of Genesis 4. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Incidentally, the answer to that question is, Yes, you are. And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Cain had thought that he could slay his brother and get away with it, that the Lord would not see what he had done. But the very blood of Abel cried out to God. Righteous Abel was not forgotten by his Lord. None of the Lord's people are. Even those who suffer terribly, we pray on a regular basis, you know, for the persecuted church, our brothers and sisters who are suffering for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in places like Pakistan, our ARP brethren, live every day as second-class citizens. Over 700 Pakistani girls, Christian girls, every year are kidnapped and forced into forced weddings. They go through forced conversion, and the state does nothing to protect our brethren. But our Lord does not forget his people. He is the one who watches over them and will be the avenger of their blood. God sees always, and he sees, and he was furious at what had happened to godly Naboth and his inheritance. So he sends Elijah to confront him at the very scene of the crime, to catch him, as it were, red-handed. He's gone out to the vineyard to see his new possession. He's full of glee and joy, and then suddenly he's confronted by the prophet of the Lord, and he is brought 
to understand what the consequences of his deeds are. He sends Elijah to confront Ahab, and Ahab, of course, greets him with, Have you found me, O my enemy? And it is amazing. It really is how often men view the ministers of God as their enemies. I've been getting along with somebody, talking to them, and then they'll ask me, So what do you do for a living? And I'll say, I'm a pastor. And instantly their countenance changes. I am their great enemy. I am the enemy of all who would live their own lives in their own way and get to heaven by their own righteousness or deny the God who created them and say there is no heaven, there is no hell and sing the words of Imagine by John Lennon in their hearts. How I hate New Year's Day for that reason, but uh, I have to put up with that, that anthem of materialism and atheism on a regular basis. But are the ministers of God really the enemies of your soul? I, I hope that's not the case because their job, their calling is to tell you the truth about your sins and to show you the only way of salvation, to remove any hope that you might have of getting to heaven by your own works. As one godly servant of the Lord said just before he died, George Whitfield, he said, works, works, get to heaven by works. It would be easier to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. And he was absolutely right. As the Puritans, though, used to say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The word of God, when it's preached, either does one or two things. It, it either humbles the human heart or it hardens it. And far too often, uh, we see that men's hearts are, are hardened by that, that very word that would save them. As Matthew Henry put it, that man's condition is very miserable. This is your Sabbath meditation, incidentally, in your folder. That man's condition is very miserable that has made the word of God his enemy, and his condition is very desperate that reckons the ministers of that word his enemies because they tell him the truth. And that's Galatians 4.16, where Paul says, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? He was preaching the truth to the Galatians, but no doubt many members of the Galatian congregation would have been very, very upset at these words because they struck directly at the Pharisaical doctrines that they had, they had embraced. They were thinking that they had to get to heaven now, beginning with Jesus Christ, but then continuing on with the works of the ceremonial law, that a man had to become a Jew in order to enter into heaven. And Paul said, no man has ever gotten into heaven by the works of the law. And he opened up the word and he showed how Abraham, for instance, was justified by faith. He believed the promises of God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, but that no one had ever been saved by keeping the ceremonial law because we all fall far short of that. We'll see that in a little while. Elijah's message is dire indeed. He tells him that his line is going to be cut off just as the lines of his predecessors had been cut off. He says also the dogs will lick up his blood. But in that sense, he's going to do better than his wife and his descendants. His wicked queen Jezebel will be eaten by dogs. And he says your descendants will be food for scavengers. Worms got to eat, same as buzzards, to quote Josie Wales in the case of his descendants. Then the author of 1 Kings tells us, at this point, immediately following that curse, the other reasons why this would happen. And he says, in short, although there were 20 kings in the northern kingdom, Ahab was by far the worst. He was no better than the, the child-sacrificing, false god-worshipping Amorites whom they had displaced from this particular area. He had made the nation 
of Israel, the northern kingdom, exactly as bad as the Canaanites who had been under God's harem, his curse, and who had been driven out of the land. What had happened, unfortunately, is the people had come full circle. They had been brought into a land flowing with milk and honey. They had been told, if you follow me, I will be your protector. I will drive your enemies out. They'll be, it'll be as the hornets are chasing them. You will have nothing to fear. Only be faithful to me, O Israel. And they had been utterly faithless. And there is now this long list of curses that the Lord had warned them before they entered in. You remember, on the plains of Moab, Moses had delivered that sermon where he had said, if you love the Lord and if you keep his commandments, these are the blessings that will follow. But if you despise the Lord, if you reject him, if you go after the false gods of the Canaanites, these are the curses that will fall upon you. And now they have nothing but curses to inherit. But then, at this point in the story, and I, I got to admit, the first time I was reading through, I still remember this to this day, the first time I was reading for, through First Kings, I did a double take at this point. Because the next thing that happened, I did not expect at all. What happened? We, I, I expected, I don't remember exactly what I expected, something like Ahab would say, kill him, seize this guy, you know, get him, throw him in jail, something like that. Feed him on the bread of affliction and the water of affliction, just as he would say about Micaiah in the next chapter. But he doesn't. He doesn't at all. What does Ahab do? He humbles himself. Isn't that remarkable? He humbles himself before the Lord. It's a, a scene as dramatic as what happened in Nineveh when Jonah preached there. You remember in Jonah chapter 3 and starting with verse 4, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The, uh, then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This was the Assyrians, the mortal enemies of, of the people of Israel. And yet they had humbled themselves on simply the word, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It was remarkable. It was dramatic. And as a result of, of this, this act of humbling himself, the Lord tells Elijah the Tishbite that while the curse is still going to fall on his household, it won't fall during Ahab's lifetime. He's decided not to, to take his line away from him before his very eyes, but later on. Now, what, what happened? Was this genuine repentance on, on Ahab's part? Did Ahab, was he, was he wonderfully born again at that moment? Did he, as Billy Sunday used to put it, walk the sawdust trail at that point in time and give his heart to Jesus? Is that what happened with Ahab? I dare say, unfortunately, no, I don't believe so. Not only is there no mention of repentance and restitution uh, following the theft of the vineyard, it should have been the case that the king immediately gave back the vineyard of Naboth to his, his family, or if his family had been wiped out, given back to his tribe. But we'll see in the next chapter that there is no true religious reformation on Ahab's part. Like a dog returning to his vomit, Ahab once again turns away from his true friends and he listens to the counsel of his enemies. We'll see that happening in the next chapter. Ahab realized that Elijah, uh, his prophecies always came true. 
And no doubt he was sorry for what his sins had won him, but he was sorry for his sins in the same way that almost every child is sorry for his sins when he is caught because he fears the punishment that is going to fall on him as a result. And as, so what does he do? Every child almost, except for the most stubborn. I, I mean, even I did it, no matter how hard-hearted I was prior to regeneration when I was caught. Oh, please, mommy, daddy, please. I didn't mean it. I'm a good boy, I am. Give me another chance, please. All the time. Was I really repentant for my, my sins, for what I'd done? No, I, I did my sins gleefully, happily. But uh, there was no true turning in my heart, not until I actually saw myself for as wicked as I really was. But Ahab has already seen the power of the Lord. And like the demons, he knows that there is a God, and he fears his power. So what does he do? He humbles himself. He does what he can. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He acts like a penitent. Uh, and it's very doubtful that he repented for what he had done. It's doubtful even that he gave the vineyard back. We have no, nothing that says he did. But he was right to have humbled himself. He should have done that. Now, he should have gone much further than that. He should have said what David said. You remember when Nathan confronted him for his sin? What did David do? David, you remember, had taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite, his mighty man, his faithful follower, and he had committed adultery with her. And then he had judicially murdered Uriah. He had sent a message to Joab, the commander of the army, saying to him, put him in the front, make sure he dies. And he had indeed died, and David had forgotten. David, you know, every man when he sins becomes a practical atheist. I don't think any man really sins thinking God is here right now. I'm in the presence of God. I'm sinning before the Lord. David had thought no one saw what he had done. Oh, sure, Joab knew about it. But Joab had been his partner in crime, or at least a, a criminal in his own actions in the past. And so he had no doubt that he would support him in this thing. And Ahab had thought when this took place, there are no consequences to this. That's what the sinner always thinks, no consequences. Um, but he realizes there will be consequences, and so he humbles himself. He wears sackcloth and ashes. But you can do that. You can break down in tears, you can wear sackcloth, you can wear ashes, uh, you can put dirt on your head, and yet never truly love God and never really believe the gospel, never turn to the Lord as David turned to the Lord, not only before Nathan saying, I have sinned, admitting his sin, but then writing those words in Psalm 51 where he declared his guilt against you and you only have I sinned, and asking once again to have the joy of his salvation restored to him, to have his iniquity purged away, to be washed cleaner than the snow once again. He does not do that. He is almost penitent, but not quite. But the Bible is full of these almost to Christians. The Governor Felix, for instance, who heard Paul preach again and again when he was imprisoned. In Acts 24, starting with verse 24, we read this. After some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. 
Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Again and again, Felix heard him. I have no doubt that he heard Paul again and again to the point where he began to be convicted of his sins, where he began to become afraid of the judgment to come, and then he would send Paul away. He would send away the friend of his soul at the very point where he needed him most. Because we all need warnings, absolutely, but we also need hope. We need the gospel message. I was very struck uh, by, by a historical event. It happened in the life of D.L. Uh, Moody. You remember the, the preacher from Chicago. He had preached a sermon one Sunday, and he had determined, I am going to lay it on thick with my congregation. I'm going to preach law, law, law. There will be no one in that room who is not convicted of their sins, and so he did so. He preached a fire-breathing sermon, but he made the point, this is just part one. Come back next week and I'll show, you, I'll show you where your relief is to be found. But the great fire of Chicago intervened in between the first sermon and the second, and he regretted that many of the people who had heard him and who had been convicted of their sins were not alive to come back for the second sermon. We must always preach law and gospel together. We must, uh, to remind us, uh, uh, we must set the law in all of its force before men, show them how they have no hope whatsoever, but then after they are parched and absolutely thirsty, then we set a broach the grace of God in their midst. We tell them about Christ and the living water, and we show them where they can find the only thing that can quench that eternal thirst, the only way that they can be cleansed of their sins. We must preach them together. But... Uh, Ahab isn't looking for that. Unfortunately, he is thinking, if I simply placate the Lord, I'll be fine. Fear is not faith. Felix was never converted, and I don't believe Ahab was either. He was never effectually called. The Westminster Confession tells us that there are people who have some operations of the Spirit this way without actually being effectually called. It tells us in Westminster Confession chapter 10 and section 4, others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the Word, and may have some common operations of the Spirit, yet they never truly come unto Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Effectual calling is something that only the Lord can do. Uh, Only he can turn our hearts. Only he can cause us to, to flee from our sins to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, men can use all sorts of means to get people to this point of conviction, the point of sackcloth and ashes, perhaps, that Ahab got to. Uh, Unfortunately, that's very common in evangelicalism even to this day. Uh, Charles Grandison Finney was the guy who really got uh, that started with his new measures. Uh, Finney was a Pelagian. He believed that every man had the power to save himself simply by repenting and following in his own strength the Lord. He said, a revival is nothing supernatural. A revival is simply the right use of means. He compared it to modern agriculture. You don't need the Holy Spirit to bring a harvest. You just plant and you water and you go through all of the, the, the means. And he'd forgotten Psalm 104 where we're told that the Lord is the one who causes the grass to to come forth. But in any event, what Finney would do is he would come into a town, he was particularly active in upstate New York, and he would uh, say he was going to have a revival, and he would gather everybody in the uh, whatever church was hosting him, and they had one section set apart in particular in the front. It was called the Anxious Bench. It was where the big sinners, they would kind of, you know, corral the, the alcoholics and the wife beaters and so on to the front, 
And then they would have a protracted service uh, full of moralism, constantly pounding them for their, uh, for their iniquities and so on, and telling them it was time that they got right with God, that they, they went to him, and that they should come forward and say the sinner's prayer. That's where that, that altar call uh, came from. And many of these men and women would become emotionally distraught. Their, their sins and the knowledge of their sins would be set before them, and the fact that they were headed to hell because of them. And they would become anxious. They would become afraid. And so they would do whatever it was Fenny was asking them to do. They would come forward. They would say the prayer after, repeat after me. And that was how he preached the gospel. But he wasn't preaching the gospel gospel. He was preaching a false gospel. You can save yourself. You can can come to Christ by your own power and stay in the faith by your own works. Many of these people said to themselves, yes, I am going to get right. I'm going to stop my drinking. I'm going to stop beating my wife or my dog or whoever. And I am going to live a different life as a different man or a different woman. And then they would try in their own power to do so, and they would fail miserably. And you know what they would say? They would say, I tried Christianity. It didn't work. No, you tried something in my own power. To quote D.L. Moody again, uh, a man once came to him on a bus. He was drunk as a skunk and falling all over himself, and he blearily eyed recognized Moody, and he said to him, Pastor Moody, don't you recognize me? You converted me. Moody looked at him and he said, yeah, you look like my work. Think about that for a moment. There's much we can do to, to cause somebody to come to a, a crisis in their life. We can use music. <laughs> we can use stories. Think of your grandmother. That kind of thing. We can do many things to play on the heartstrings of a congregation, to get them into an emotional fervor. We can get to the point where they're wailing and howling and crying and weeping. But we cannot save them. Only Christ can do that. Only the gospel can do that. Only the Holy Spirit working effectually within them can do that. And it did not happen, unfortunately, in the life of Ahab. He got the conviction, but he did not go beyond that. Truly, the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless, but for a moment, as Job put it in Job 25, uh, verse 5. Now, uh, because of that, I want you to see the truth. I, I do. I want you to know this. God knows everything about you. Just as Ahab had nowhere to hide before God, you have nowhere to hide before God. You do not have a lead-lined room that he cannot see into. Everything that you do, every word that you say, and this is the scariest one to me, every thought that you think is known unto the Lord. That's why you can pray silently and he hears you. He knows what you've been thinking. That's not applied to Santa. He's a fiction. But the Lord does know. He knows what you have been doing all the time. And he knows that just as Ahab had no excuses to make, you have no excuses to make. There is nothing that you can say to clear yourself. Even ignorance of the law, as in our civil law, believe it or not, is no excuse. I found that when I said to the police officer, I didn't know I was in a 35 zone. He said to me, smiling, doesn't matter whether you knew, (laughs) you were. And the truth is, it doesn't matter whether or not you acknowledge that you've broken the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth commandments, you have. And so you stand as a guilty sinner this day 
before the Lord if you are not in Christ. Your own desires have caused you to sin, have caused you to commit iniquity before the Lord. And therefore, if you are to be saved, what must you do? Well, many turned to works of righteousness. There have been many philanthropists. I always mispronounce that word. It's one of the many. Many philanthropists in history who have thought, by spending inordinate sums of money in charity, I will save myself. Many of the robber barons built churches, stained glass windows, all sorts of good works for the Christian church, thinking that they would overcome the terrible things that they had done in their lives in order to achieve their positions of power. It's false. What does is, what is the, the Bible say about our, our attempts at good works in our own power, our attempts to uh, absolve ourselves from sin? Well, Isaiah says this in Isaiah 64, 6. And note this, he's not talking, when he speaks about this here, he's not talking about your sins. He's talking about your attempts at righteousness, at justifying yourself. Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But Paul explained how we can be delivered from that desperate condition. It is not the simply cut off, all we like sheep have gone astray, and that's the end of it. But rather, there is hope for us. In Romans, we read about it. Turn with me, would you, in your Bibles? I want you to read this for yourself, not just me. Romans chapter 3, and then starting with verse 20. Hopefully this will take away any hope that you have of saving yourselves by your own deeds. Paul says this, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. I want you to notice one thing there. It comes up several times. There's much that I, I hope you took away there, but note this. Your righteousnesses, as Isaiah put it, are filthy rags. All of our sackcloth, our ashes, if we were medieval monks like Luther, our self-flagellation, our wearing of hair shirts, our going without hot food, our, our only showering cold, and all of those things that we might do to afflict ourselves, our attempts at righteousness are worthless. They will never atone for our sins. Did you see the repetition of the phrase, his righteousness, his righteousness, whose righteousness, God's righteousness, God's perfect righteousness. Whose righteousness do you need? You need his righteousness. And this is something that can only be given to you if you close with Christ by faith. Then his righteousness, his perfect law keeping is imputed to you. 
What did it say of faithful Abraham? Even in the Old Testament, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Not Abraham's righteousness saved him, but Abraham's faith gave him access to the righteousness of God. That's the righteousness we need, a perfect righteousness, a spotless righteousness, a stainless righteousness, a righteousness that Ahab was not pursuing. He thought that by by his own groveling before God that that would be enough. It was right for him to humble himself. We should all humble ourselves before God, but do not think that by merely bowing before God, that is enough. We remember on the last day we are warned that every knee will bow those who had bowed before and those who were forced to bow then, and every tongue will confess, willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus is Lord. Even the demons know that. But don't be counted with their number. Be counted with those who have bowed the knee here, who have humbled themselves but gone further, have closed with Christ by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the great promise, God's covenantal promise. Do not hesitate but close with him if you have not already done so. Let's go before him now. God, our gracious Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would not give us Ahab's contrition or Judas's despair. I pray, Lord, that you would instead give us the kind of repentance that Peter, after he betrayed you in the courtyard, was given. He saw his sins. He thought all is lost, but you met him. And you assured him of your love and you restored him. You had prayed for him that he might not be lost. I pray therefore this day, O Lord, that you would keep us, preserve us, call us if you have not yet done so. Those who hear my voice will, there will be a mixed multitude, some who have not yet come to you by faith. I pray, Lord, that you would put upon their conscience this day their sins and let them know that their own attempts at righteousness will never overcome them. But instead, O Lord, Let them cast them away and flee to Christ. Let them go to him and achieve that salvation that only he can give. Let them accept the wedding garment that only he can put upon them. Oh, Lord, we do pray this in Jesus' name.